0: Hello, this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast, I'm David Turner. Today's episode is made up of three parts. Later on you're going to be hearing from Peter DeGraff-Johnson, the repeat beat poet, and uh, Norwegian poet Marta Ram-Fortune. But before before those two, we've got Lizzie Palmer in South London talking to Susan Gray. And Susan is a London-based spoken word artist and playwright, taking her inspiration from sci-fi and other related topics that I know little or nothing about but if you want to find out more about susan's uh, fantastic poetry you can go to www.susiegforce.co.uk or find her on twitter at susie underscore g hyperlinks with correct spellings to those uh, will be in the description to the audio on soundcloud as always here are lizzie and susan
1: Hello, my name is Lizzie Palmer and today I am joined by the lovely poet Susie Gray. Hello Susie. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Uh, We are in the middle of a heatwave, so I have to (laughs) apologise to Susie for having shut all the windows to keep the noise out. Uh, You'll probably hear us getting baked alive in the name of poetry. (laughs) Um, So if it's okay with you Susie, we'll start with your first poem, please. Sure. Okay,
2: let's... So, um, this poem's called Robot Factory. My code is old. My models may be new, but the algorithms borrowed as past versions of me stagnate, corrode, and I'm trying to find the right tempo and individual rhythm for breathing. My code is old. My models may be new, but the algorithms borrowed that I can't distinguish time from packets sold to me, strapped to wrists, hidden in pockets, Events passed out like hand-me-downs. My history's infected with the bugs of emotion that I'm trying to backwards engineer to understand fully. My code is old. My models may be new, but the algorithm's borrowed. Updated so often that it's hard to know where the startup starts and execution ends. That I can't remember a time before modifiers' metaphors. The trappings of possessives, media wrappings. Two arms to carve out landscapes. Legs mediated to the speed limit that my mind makes. Sense data that my eyes take, sometimes for granted. Outlines where my reasoning meets. Language that transcends and cements them. My code is old. My models may be new, but the algorithms borrowed. I came from a world where love was expressed in possessives. Missives dispatched in metaphor to disguise the nature of their intent. My love, the aperture of the subject. Energy directed towards the statement's end, creating a corner of reality rendered around your outline as precarious as a dream, rewiring each circuit, each seam in our perceptions, hoping the equation will be balanced the whole way through. My code is old. My models may be new, but the algorithms borrowed, unpiecing the mesh of flesh versus metal, coordinates to unravel the spells of hormones defining rationalisation in the homeostatic notion of a fallible being prone to delusion of self and other, possessive in love and sense of order against the fever, the awakening of entropy. My code is old my models may be new by the algorithms borrowed like i'm playing this video game on rails or space-time survival skills embedded in the foundational code that isn't mine against the minds of mortality rebuilding myself constantly waiting for the day where we will no longer have to my muscles silicon sprung lungs like detectives scouting the breadth of the world stories ready to be told unfolded in updates to systems we ride for the future To be newly sired in this robot factory, our armour only to consistency of character, no longer bombarded with fear of tear, no threat to be restarted as we grow in understanding strength reinforced with perfectly timed repairs. Until then, my code will still be old. My models may be new but the algorithms borrowed as our research rewrites our realities, giving us the potency to overcome anything.
1: Lovely, thanks so much. Thank um, so I'd like to start by asking you um, when you began writing poetry, uh, and maybe some of the reasons around why and how that happened.
2: Okay. Um, well, I can't remember time when I wasn't writing. So um, I wanted to be a writer since I was about six years old, and yeah. I used to write these little stories and for for school and like after school writing clubs and stuff. And I think. The first time I probably wrote poetry that wasn't in school was um, when I was around 11 or 12. Yeah. So I would write um, fantasy and science fiction stories, and I actually used poetry as a way of understanding the character. So I'd write about the character in the voice of the poem, and that's when I was doing a lot of online stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, do you know writing.com? No. Mm, Because I think that was like way before MySpace. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's the same as me, actually. I
1: sort of can't remember not ever doing it um, and enjoying it at school as well as a kid. And I don't know, I think that's probably always my favourite question on these interviews because it always gets a different answer. Mm. Um, Either people have always done it or there's a particular life event that's happened that's, you know, inspired them to do it. So, yeah, I always find it really fascinating Mm. how people have come to be doing this with their time (laughs) um so if you could maybe tell us a bit about the influences behind your work um so in terms of the subjects and the themes that you tend to address the most as well maybe as any wider reasons that get you wanting or needing to write if that makes sense Hmm.
2: I guess poetry wise uh, I think William Blake was someone who inspired me a lot so you know I studied him at school and in university and that kind of understanding between innocence and experience so you know when you see the world and like the different systems you're not really aware of it until you're older mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to address in science fiction in the science fiction sense so you know seeing another way of being yeah mm-hmm. cool um so on that note we'll have your second poem please sure so uh this is called event two I was written by both hands. Two hands that I don't know, like the backs of my own. Two hands that I wish I could hold more often. They say that we can never truly touch, just interact. The wave of molecules making way to the sway of movement. A dance we can never learn all the steps to by heart, but the freestyle is worth the risk. The hindsight of art directing the spotlight to the limbic system. All emotions are painted on, lacquered in finish. Adding part to the laddered pattern of realities versus expectancies. The screen-grab nature of causality, backwards-engineered reality of events that survived eternity. Wrapped around tongues like spun sugars melted upon impact. Brush strokes tracked in curlicues. DNA curls unfurling onto warm stones underfoot. Rattling with activity. Soundscapes transposed into different keys, symphonies that spark my sympathies with the growing mind, as each of my hemispheres become aligned, the hiss of fused wires, energies fizz and Walls of jade and gold painted with a smell of heat while the core of mine shakes with lullabies, energised by the range of embouchures I've yet to discover as the sense folds inside out. Thank you. Um, so following on
1: from the last question, um, obviously science and science fiction features quite heavily in your mm. work, um, do you ever think much about, um, obviously sort of science and art are often seen as opposing things, do you mm. think much about combining those two, is it sort of like a conscious process you have to go through to, to marry the two together or is that just something that happens naturally?
2: Um. Yeah, I think it happens naturally, it's interesting because when I was a child I wanted to be a writer but I also wanted to be a doctor as well, Okay. so I was really interested in science and um, actually I remember one of my earliest memories was that, um, because I wanted to be an inventor as well, so I used to sketch out these inventions and show them to my grandfather at the time, so he would always, you know, go through them with me and I'd explain them to him and how it works, and when I started writing, a lot of the science that you know I had read up on kind of influenced my work, so mm-hmm. I don't think I consciously try to put them together. I think there's always a way. Yeah, go into work in.
1: Um, so another thing I was wondering was uh, whether you have a writing process, um, sort of a, you know whether that's a set thing, a, a set way that you do um, the, the writing every time, or whether it's more fluid than that. Um, or whether it's totally unconscious. Um, So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us your thoughts around that. Hmm.
2: Um, Well, a lot of the times, like I always have my notebook on me. So before I go to bed, sometimes I'll write a bit. When I wake up, I'll write a bit. I have a lot of notes on my phone. So I just scribble odd things in there. And... Yeah, I'm trying to do like a daily thing, but (laughs) some days come more easily than others. it's not that easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So do you find
1: the way you write has changed much over the course of your life since you've been doing it?
2: Hmm. Um, I think... I think it has in a way. I think when I was getting into performance poetry as well, that the subject changed. Because I didn't think that you could do science fiction poetry. Yeah at the time so I did a lot more personal things but um, at the same time trying to mix the science fictional and the personal and the poetry together so that's quite a big task. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually my that leads us on
1: to my next question, um, so I, I wanted to ask about your performance, um, so maybe you could just talk a little bit about it in general, uh, how long you've been performing your poetry for um, and yeah like the effect that that's had on your writing Mm. Um, specifically if if it has had much effect, um, just generally your experience of the
2: performing in relation to your writing. Yeah, sure. Um, It's it's interesting because as a child I was very much into drama and then when I went into high school I hated drama, which is very strange, but I think it's that part of the teenage self-conscious kind of period that you go through. And um, it was until I joined the Roundhouse Poetry Collective that I kind of found my feet in performing. And it's interesting because um, I found out about it through a pamphlet when I went to see a show at the Roundhouse. And I didn't know it was performance poetry. So I, I actually thought you would just <laughs> write it, you know, do a poetry workshop and then you just take your poem home. And I remember the first thing, um, do you know Polar Bear? No. Ah, so he was the facilitator. And he basically said, you know, write a poem in like three minutes and perform it. Oh, okay. On stage, wow. <laughs> yeah, on like the first on the first day, but yeah, a bit of a shock.
1: Yeah, but you're glad you did it, presumably. I'm so glad. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, there's um, a lot of similarities between us. Actually, I I was the same. I always loved drama, um, and I always found performing came quite easily to me when I was a character. Mm. But since i started performing poetry years later, I found that a totally different experience reading my own yeah. stuff that I've written and being me. Mm. In fact, more me than I ever am. Um, so do you find, like, how
2: different do you find those two experiences? Mm. Um, I think it, I find it more naturally coming from me rather than character. Because mm. I don't, well, you see, the <laughs> it's interesting because also my work is sometimes seen as a bit detached. So I try to put some kind of personality in it through performance, okay. which is sometimes a bit hard because, you know, I've had you know this feeling when I do science fiction that, you know, I'm not really doing it as personally as other people because I'm kind of detaching myself from the world we know. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to add my... still have that sense of character in it. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to pin down. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting.
1: Do you find that the more you perform... That does become easier or
2: hmm.
1: is it still something that you're sort of not struggling with but is it something that you're thinking about a lot as you perform?
2: Ah, um, I think you know I think yeah I think it's the initial nerves but then once you kind of get in there and start performing everything kind of freezes in time mm-hmm. so it's really hard to kind of analyze what went wrong beforehand. Yeah. Do you
1: find you black out when you're behind the microphone?
2: In a sense, yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And then you've forgotten everything that's just happened. That's just me, I don't know. Um, Yeah, could
2: we have your third and final poem, please? Sure. Thank you. Okay, so this poem is called Glitch. Irrationality romanticised into encouragement. It's meant to be intentional, they say, but I find it hard to research to find the blueprint for it. The words first uttered that justified the pain, the joy, the holes bored into our minds that we needed filling, eaten by the ease of it. Sights of action like enzymes rejoicing in the needful flesh, in the age of machines, connection in the age of mistrust, the fear to yearn for embrace, in hindsight of severed connections. For the more we build, the more we stand to lose. But the glitch is worth it, they say, and I believe it. Outside of the benefits of safety, security, outside of the grooves of the rat races, lanes of the baton pass, the glitch is worth it. Structures that we build in each other's heads that we hold safe for each other, that we see outside of ourselves. Irrationality, romanticized into encouragement. It's meant to be intentional, they say. Justification for the life we live, energy seen positively, the glitch is worth it. Thank you.
1: Um, so, finally, if you could tell us a bit about what projects
2: you've got going on at the moment, if you have any, um, any upcoming gigs, things like that. Sure. Um, at the moment, well, I've been doing an ongoing thing um, with a crowdfunded space mission. That's actually called Lunar Mission One, oh. so I thought it was quite appropriate <laughs> for the podcast. Very appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, d- I've done, like, a poetry piece for them, and I've been um, working on a poetry competition Actually, that should be announced very soon, so... Oh, okay, great, yeah. um, And you have a chat book out, don't you? Uh, yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that as well? Mm, yeah, so um, it's called Energy or the Art of Keeping It Together. And it's kind of the idea that energy can take any sort of form and it never truly disappears. So we never truly disappear, we just change. And this kind of idea really, like, fascinated me. So I wanted to write different ways that a person can change... All that humanity can change. So each poem is quite different, but in a way it's still under the same umbrella. Oh great, that's a lovely idea for a book of poetry as well. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and so you have a blog as well, don't you? Oh yes. And that's got all your your other bits and pieces on there. Um, obviously, as usual, we'll put the written links to all of these things beneath the video. Um, so your blog, I think is suzygforce.co.uk, is that right? Yeah. Um, and your Twitter handle is at Susie underscore G. Um, yeah, so it's been wonderful having you, Susie. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. You're <laughs> welcome. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye.
0: hope it was Susan great. And, uh, yeah, as I'm terrible at remembering to mention our own uh, social media presence, um, if you want to follow what, what we're up to on Twitter, it's silent underscore tongue. Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and SoundCloud and now Tumblr. Next up is uh, Peter Graaf Johnson. He's a London-based poet and performer, co-founder of The Pad, which happens out in Essex, and a member of the Typeface Poetry Collective. If you want to find out more, I mean, Peter goes on to describe more about each of those things in, in his chat coming up, but if you want to follow more of his work, then you can go to HowlingOnBeat.tumblr.com, and it's repeatbeatpoet on Twitter so coming up next is me chatting to Peter
3: this is called A Black View I woke up to another set of terrorist threats revealing some seriously questionable mindsets convinced me I might have to grab a bulletproof vest before taking my next test and to avoid challenging jokes no not even in jest and not to speak too loud because it is dangerous to protest. Just be happily repressed and under constant duress, it is always best to express caution, while the world outside is storming, while we're praying for a peaceful dawning, while we're baying for that one fine morning. To the sky I found myself calling. If I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, would it be my family that's mourning? Would it be my body in the casket laid and would it prove worthy of adoring? If my blood was still gently pouring out and I was laying in the street dead, meat splayed out and my mouth open wide like I'm yawning? Would that image succeed in being flooring enough? Would that portrait leave on look dumbstruck? Could it serve as a black boy's warning? I'm sorry the system wasn't built for you. Send your complaints to whoever's not ignoring. And if that injustice is still gnawing away, bottle up your righteous rage for a rainy day. You'll need it when vulgarities are thrown your way. Through trials and pain, you'll feel what to say. And as these words are sealed neatly in a coffin, and as the last light draws in, I'll think of the state of things, of biting winters and mirages of spring, and of sins. Thanks, Matt. Um, actually, my first question was going to be, uh, how did the name come about? The name, uh, the repeat Beat yeah. of poet. Um, I had it as an idea in my gap year um, when I was basically reading an absolute like cavern full of, of beat poetry. It was a, uh, it was it was the time of first reading on the road while I was traveling, um, which is a bit of a classic. But then I like delved a little bit more into the history and the culture of it, and then I just thought, um beat poet standard but repeat beat, it just had a nice little ring to it. And yeah. so I like stored it away for a rainy day. I think
0: yeah, I think that's sort of where my question was going, was it I didn't know how much it had beat as in musical terms or beat as in the beat poets. Oh well that's the yeah. thing isn't it? it's both. Yeah. yeah. Very clever. about
3: <laughs> 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 um maybe you could introduce yourself a bit
0: um and before we chat about your work.
3: Yeah, so um my name is the repeat beat poet, um, also known as Peter de Graaf Johnson. I'm a 22 year old spoken word artist living in London. Um, I've been writing for about four or five years uh, properly now. Um, I had a private Tumblr and everything, but then I decided to take it public. Um, my first open mic uh, sort of experiences were first year of university, moving to London um, from Essex, and then throwing myself into the world and being like, I very much got the bug um, I read for the first time and then thought this is something that i can I can do. I'd had a musical kind of like upbringing experience before that, but I always loved lyrics um lyrics, oratory storytelling um vocalisms, like anything in that world like properly encapsulated me, and so i thought if i can if I can find a way to make this work like this experience then i'll then I'll just like stay here forever and then Turn it into a career, or however I can survive.
0: Um, who were the first people you were looking at and thinking, in terms of writing?
3: I mean, I'd like to do something like that. Was it poets or was it musicians? Or? Um, it was it was musicians to, to begin with, but it was just hip hop. I, I was always surrounded by by a lot of hip hop, even when I didn't really know about it. And then um, even even before that, um, it was. It was things like uh, like gospel music. Um, and I, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up in like an evangelical church. And so seeing like a pastor effectively MC a crowd for two hours, I remember looking at that and being like, that's like public speaking, that's like performance, I can do that. And then when I, uh, I have an older brother as well, I kind of like got my first iTunes library from him, and he was into a lot of hip-hop. So that was like Nas, he was into a lot of... A lot of uh, kind of like '90s, more socially conscious unquote stuff. So like uh, your roots, uh, Mozdef, Def, um, Black Star, Talib quali uh, that kind of world. But then again, I also had all the other sort of lyrics and uh, all the other music I enjoyed. Um, I was an indie kid. <laughs> I had a lot of Libertines, uh, a lot of Libertines love, and the writing of Pete Doherty that really encapsulated me as well. And so yeah, a bit of a bit of a hodgepodge of a bunch of stuff but started early with hip-hop
0: yeah yeah it's interesting talking to people in London to find out where their early influences came from because um uh Michelle Madsen was in Nigeria in Lagos talking to the guy I forget his name now but it's word up 411 and um the whole spoken word thing at the moment in Nigeria is just exploding because it's, it's there's such a natural link between it and the church so there's you know it sort of runs on quite naturally for them um yeah it's quite different for me i didn't really i didn't have any experience going to church when i was younger so i never saw that side. but i think even some perhaps because there's a big difference isn't there between different congregations as well in yeah. of speaking that goes on and stuff as well so yeah. i might not have come across it anyway but um what was your uh education like in terms of when you went to university, was it any literature involved or? Uh
3: yeah, so um, I studied English lit um at the University of East London, um, which was alright. Um but the the reason why I went to university and the reason why I always wanted to go to university was just to meet people and to be in London and to have the opportunity of uh of uh basically being like a sponge and just imbibing all of this stuff that was around. Like, you know, I knew that I'd meet a couple of cool people and then within like, you know two weeks I've been to my first open mic night and then I was, was also working as a journalist at that time and writing uh writing for a bunch of websites and so I ended up getting like a writing gig within the first two months as well um, and already I'm like right so I have one eye on actual university and then one eye on all the opportunities that but I mean I loved my dissertation I managed to write a dissertation that incorporated my love of like poetry and spoken word and then also kind of basically fit criteria of what it needed to be as well uh, so that was pretty enjoyable. Yeah. It was about hip-hop. It was about like uh, the continuation of, of of black expression through time. So it started off with uh, the Harlem Renaissance, uh, Cab Calloway, the Hepcats Dictionary, Jive Dictionary. Oh, that talk. <laughs> 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 there, there was that. And then um, we moved on to uh, the 1960s and 70s and the Black Power Era um, and uh, the, the Black Arts Movement, Amiri Baraka lots of that stuff. And then the third sort of section was hip-hop. It was hip-hop culture uh, in the mainly early 90s, um, talking about about a lot of Nas, um, a lot of Wu-Tang Clan, um, a lot of uh, poetry as function, and especially rap as function. When you have an album called Liquid Swords, and it's all about, um, sorry, Lyrical Swords as well, Liquid Swords, it's all about using words as function and poetry as function. Um, that stuff has been, has been central to the black expression, all the way back since, since we started talking about the term, um, and so I was basically trying to trace that lineage, um, and connect up the dots between things that don't usually get connected in that way.
0: Mm.
3: Yeah. So there's obviously a connection between that and the first poem you wrote, mm. um, oh, that you read. Sorry,
0: just now. Uh, I felt a bit bad going from something that was quite charged in tone to just going to sort of like a quite a mediocre introduction into your work and stuff. But it's the way these things work sometimes. Um, would you? Is this a, a, a theme that runs through all your writing, or is it just by chance that you chose that as the first
3: um, reading? I, I chose that as, as the first reading because we're recording this on the second of August, twenty sixteen, and it's it's been a really febrile. Um, feeling and situation in london and, and across the world in terms of like race relations and conversations we're still having microaggressions um i i recently performed at a festival um and uh, and the theme of it was uh like wonders of the ancient world and so it lent itself to microaggressions to uh, to lots of cultural appropriation you know, people in like, you know, the dreadlock hats or like, you know, the Aztec printed shirts mm. and in and of themselves, you know, people are thinking, oh, it's OK. But um, I wrote that piece, A Black View, um, a while ago when I first heard about Tamir Rice. Um, and I looked at the lineage of, of public black killings, killings of black people in public. Uh, and obviously they're, they're documented and it's just very present in a way that it hasn't always been for me. Um, and so I felt that I had to kick off with that because I think it's a really important piece for me right now and a really important piece for people to hear right now. Um, so, yeah, so, th- so that's where that comes from. I have more, like, introductory, less... <laughs> no, no, I'm glad you chose it because it's nice to... Uh,
0: it's I, it's nice when people come on and they... Uh, I was going to say patronising it. I was going to say brave enough to, like, open with something like that because no, it's, 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 not, it's not always easy to decide... Um, it, it's as I went on and sort of went introdu- into the introduction to you because sometimes you fall into a pattern and a habit of the way these conversations should work mm. um, my, I was going to follow up just, just thinking there because it's something I've been thinking about a lot and I think we might have spoken about it the other day when we were chatting about whether spoken word is the right medium for talking about really serious messages because I, obviously it is because it, reaches, it, it can easily reach a wide audience but my feeling is that it's sometimes too easy to for people to on facebook put a thumbs up click a like claim to have understood and engaged is what i mean is is spoken word also too easy to ignore
3: as well do you know what i mean i think i think it can be and it can be transient just because of the medium it is in terms of like short form um you know like the a two minute video on Facebook when you see it in like, you know, when you're coming home from work or whatever, you can watch that and then kind of uh, gloss over it. And then it can be forgotten very simply. Like I, I was a film journalist. And so I have a lot of love for, for like proper 90 minute long <laughs> feature films as, as a medium to address stuff as well. Um, the, the, the reason why I do come back to spoken word is because it's instant. It's really direct. It's like, it is someone on stage or in front of a microphone telling you about their position and and if they're good at it you'll understand and it will stay with you like i i can i can remember lines from from poems i've heard not only i heard a lot of them because you know you go to the same nights but i do remember lines i've heard three four years ago from from a poet and then everyone can relate to it in terms of lyrics you'll hear a couplet that will just stick with you, and I think that that's what spoken word can do really well. It can distill stuff into almost more sizable chunks that can be—they're not always, but they can be—like you know, easier to carry around with you in your head and things like that. Yeah, I think I mean definitely one of the positives I see in
0: it is that sometimes people are put off with engagement with certain topics because they feel like they're being lectured, and I suppose with the short form of spoken word can seem more accessible because it perhaps doesn't feel like that it feels more like it's just a shorter message, isn't it but um mm. I don't know I think it's something I need to come back to personally about whether the whole thing be, with as popular that's what I mean as it grows in popularity and becomes more mainstream and there's more content everywhere then that people just stop ignoring it because it becomes such a
3: standard way of communicating. Do you know what I mean? That's no, I, I, I mean, I. I mean, I, I hope not. I'm just yeah. yeah. I, I fear for that <laughs> happening, but I do reckon as as the spoken word scene grows, we'll just get a larger variety of stuff. Like it, it, it will be, it will be, it will be stuff like this: podcasts and and like documentaries and what you would call like secondary stuff around the culture, making sure that people when they find out about it for the first time can see it all laid out in front of them, can churn through everything. They can see the full spectrum of, like, you know, uh, like, one-and-a-half-minute slam poems about this or, like, you know, eight-minute spoken-word epics about about other topics. Um, and once we have all that sort of stuff laid out for new people to find, I think that's when... that That's how we keep it vibrant, and that's how we keep it, like, yeah, direct, and we keep it um, accessible. Because then, yeah, it could... You know, there's danger of it becoming mainstream and then losing what you would call credibility and stuff like that. But yeah, as long as we can keep the full spectrum available to new people, then, then yeah, I think it's in a good place. Mm. This
0: is a good time for a second reading.
3: Yeah, okay. Um, so <laughs> after having spoken about, um, about the short form and about that, um, I'm now going to do uh, uh, like a five-minute poem um, and it's called Reconciliation. And I won't say much more about it, I think it, I hope it speaks for itself. Yeah. I lie awake at night, in cold sweat and mild fret thinking about events in life. There's a lesson to be learned here, apart from behavioural changes cemented and branded with fear, laced with disgust. As ever, mistrust leaves an old relationship in dust, from which rises new people until the trust re crumbles and apologies are mumbled and stumbled over because the cracks too deep to be papered over, they're bigger than supernovas. They were close, growing up, like in friends, into poetry and prose. They stumbled upon each other and their partnership rose. She would dissect his intellect, while he slowly crowed that she was a revelation, bleeding with optimism, using smart lines to teach him rhymes, you know how the story goes. Boy idolises girl, unwittingly so. He's older, she's younger, love mutually flows. Forced in the fires of foresight deficient thought, one night they clash, and are both left straw but not before they'd laid themselves bare. Propped up by the bar, our honest, loving pair dipped the conversation, open flirtation. He loved the degradation. She obliged without hesitation. They backed up their back and forth with precision and force until vocal cords stretched hoarse, cigarette smoke, no remorse. Fragile steps to the doors. She pushed him gently toward the things he'd ever confront directly. She knew that she was loved intensely and she could read him like a neon sign, but still pushed him gently. The conversation was two-way, neither sat back and took, but with each lingering glance and wine-sodden look, they danced around the tension between them, until reckless youth outgunned honest intentions, it was like divine conception, the connection was an immaculate piece of natural selection, chance and coalescence, but the sky was set with a luminous omnipresence that signalled events unprecedented or paralleled, they threw their caution to the wishing well, they lamented nothing as they prematurely reminisced and she nonchalantly sweetly blessed him with a kiss. A signal of affection, her lips had meant contentment. Imaginary, solitary, monastery, contentment. The cup of tea you really need made perfectly, contentment. Being forgiven without deserving a moment's listen and knowing you don't deserve contentment. Facing all the consequences of your self-resentment with contentment. Whether or not for their betterment, they regressed to purest elements. First thought, best thought, no thought, contentment. Full sense of security, that's contentment. Losing sight of the gem that's right in front of you, twisted type of contentment, breed-bubbling resentment, and this time things were different. They're home, they're in the kitchen. The tea's turned into a mission. No PG, no Tetley's, and the milk's gone missing. They get by with more wine and childish flirtation until he moved too quick, pressuring her invitation. The rest of the story needs no explanation, but I'm not so cruel as to leave it to your imagination. Suppressed and undressed, feeling effects of intoxication and infatuation, the tension broke out into forceful carnal relations. Vice-tight embracing heavy blows and abrasions quickly shifted into an abusive situation. Arguments fueled with escalation. He knew she should hate him. She knew she'd been a victim. He spoke tearfully and with conviction, tearing himself apart over his decisions. He cried out his eyes. The shock had electrified her system. He called 999 from the kitchen. In the ambulance, the ambience was nothing short of horrific. Two people in states of semi-conscious haze, in a dazed rage and desperately longing for things to somehow be okay. But first came police statements. Different times at different stations. She didn't press charges. Something about second chances. And so they loved, they lost, cut all communication. She's building new foundations. She's worked it out, he's worked it out turns out to be a type of temporary termination. Any romance was spoiled by over eager determination. Infatuation ruined by idle creation. She gave him his voice, his words and his spark. She also gave him a project to mold into an arc. And that sexual and emotional manipulation seemed to walk in the park when it was after dark, after hours underage, drinking in a bar. He had made his marks and made his scars. Text conversation began after time had passed began with her tentatively treading into their intertwined past past the good year they rolled over life's turbulent waves together feeling better for knowing the world together he was a man for having met her she had made him be better while he pierced the hand that fed clamping down on she who fed him and believed in him and harming she who breathed and dreamed the best parts of him into existence somehow she forgave him and gave herself freedom growing strong despite the terror And since comedy equals tragedy plus time, when they talk together very rarely, barely ever, that event doesn't have to define their story together. The complexity of these lives cannot be confined nor measured, and now somehow they laugh together, because they live like they couldn't love, with a bitter experience, but together.
0: Thanks very much. Um, So we've talked probably enough about you Personally, as a writer, or as much as we've got time for it at the moment, I'd like to talk a bit about your collaborative projects. Yeah. Um. Maybe you could just
3: list a few, and then we can start <laughs> to talking about some. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, uh, I'm I, I write with uh, with two poetry collectives. Um. The soon-to-be legendary Typeface Poetry Collective. Um. And then uh, the newly formed Little Verse Poetry Collective. Um. Both like reading and writing regularly. You know, we meet up, we chat, and we get into like the bones of some poetry um, this is a really great situation to be in with other writers um, and then also um, i run a creative arts venue called the pad um, we founded it i say we um it was founded by uh, me and two uh, friends from university um at the end of second year um we got the space the physical space in Dagenham. um the we're coming up to a year now so we got it in september 2015 um, and the, the idea behind this space um, is to be able to bring together creative people, artists, uh, into a physical space where they can see all different types of art. We're into the crossover about art and we're into um, the full spectrum of the creative process. We really like seeing a DJ who will, you know, end up doing backing for a spoken word artist while. Um, an illustrator is capturing the, the entire event and then maybe like a sculptor is just there in the corner as well. We always make a point um, with our programming um, to to have a full broad variety of of creative events. And then we also just want to make sure that people feel comfortable in the space. Like it's called the pad because we want it to feel like like your mate's pad, like a cool place to hang out. Um, and you know from from what people have said about it, um, they they tend to get that. And so I mean that's really good. We uh, we do a lot for the community, and we're trying to build up a community. Um, and it's difficult, but it is also really, really worthwhile seeing seeing people talk about it like when they're leaving an event or seeing people feel comfortable there. Um, and seeing people come back we love people who come back <laughs> if you have come once that's cool that's great you, you manage to find a place if you come back and bring a friend we're like yes you're my people <laughs> um, and that's how you build a community uh, and we're really into that yeah uh, and that's the pad so what why
0: is it so important for the pad to have these crossover relationships between artists why not why not uh, just do the easy thing and follow the template of booking different people, without any links.
3: Oh, because because nobody is singularly into one part of creativity. No one just likes films, or just likes music, or just likes visual art, or just likes photography, or just likes anything. I think it, it's it's a weird thing that hasn't always been hasn't always been present in like how people view themselves creativ- uh, Creatively. We now live in an age where I can, like you know, access every music song, blah blah, blah etc. You know, with asterisks. But I can, through Spotify, YouTube, the internet, etc. We have such broad access to everything that we don't have to. We don't have to choose in the same way that we would have had to 25 years ago, when when your identity was so much intertwined with the music you listened to or the films you watched. Now you get to build your identity a little bit. More, I would say, independently through what you enjoy across all all forms of art. So I have spoken a little bit about the films that I like. I used to watch and write about, and also obviously spoken word. But then um, I have a great love for visual art as well, um, and and many other art forms. Podcasting you can argue as an art form. The conversation, um, and that's why it's important for the pad to have to have all these different strands of stuff going on because. It means that you, you may come looking for you know, a short film that you really enjoyed. But then you hear a DJ who's mixing music in between the two films you're watching and, and then all of a sudden you're into another thing. Um, and then it keeps the ball rolling, it keeps people on their toes and it also keeps them interested because you never know what you're going to get. You're going to find some absolutely incredible stuff and it may be in a field that you don't feel comfortable in. And that's great because it means you can get people on side, get them experiencing new stuff in a situation they're comfortable in and they're more likely to, you know, check the person out when they leave.
0: <laughs> um, and uh, we spoke before and that um, discussion and conversation is a big part of what happens at the pad as well. Um, maybe you could just give a short description of what that involves at the nights and then... Uh, Tell us why,
3: why that became a part of what The Pad is. Yeah. Um, so um, I I host a monthly poetry night at The Pad called Poetry at The Pad. Um, and it's like, it's subtitled Lyrical Something Every Time. So we've had like, you know, lyrical critical, lyrical powerful, lyrical improvisational. Um, and the structure of the night is that we get um, a feature to come down and do the standard 20 minute performance. but Then we also allow them to talk about their work for 20-25 minutes, whatever it is, in conversation with myself, just to give the work more context, uh, to to bring it into a new critical space where people can discuss it a little bit more than uh, than the standard, like, you know, over the fag, outside the back of the venue. Um, and And the reason why that's important is because that is how we Make sure we respect spoken word as an art form, and make sure that other people respect us as an art form. Um, if we if we speak about it in a very flippant way, if we don't give it um, the time and the respect and the energy uh, it needs to to properly engage with all this stuff, then then of course, if we're not doing it, then why should anybody else outside of uh, outside of our communities pay attention? Um, it, we need. I really believe that we need to value value spoken word in a in a larger way because larger institutions corporations etc are now coming around to our way of thinking and um, there's a reason why the BBC channel 4 etc are putting money into spoken word there was the world's first collective channel 4 had a uh, uh, had pickups where they filmed I think it was six or seven poets just to do a poem and it went out on like you know E4 that night and there's all of this energy and momentum now Um, But if we don't, if we are not controlling where that goes and, you know, making sure that we can give an academic, critical, um, properly invested view of it, if we can provide that as an alternative to the mainstream side of it, um, like, you know, the short form three minute slam poetry, which perfectly has its place. And we need both. uh, I think that's what I'm trying to do with Poetry at the Pad. I'm trying to provide a space where where spoken word can be, and the spoken word and the written word, just word in general, hence the lyrical thing, where, where we can truly value and give it space and time to investigate and see why we do what we do and why it's important to do what we do and why it's important to keep on talking about what we, why we do what we do. And um, there's, there's a, a filmmaker called Tyrone Lewis, who is also an incredible poet, um, we had him feature at poetry. Sorry, we had him feature as one of the po- one of the poets at Poetry at the Pad, um, for our first event. Um, and he also is a documentarian. He's made two spoken word films now. Um, one of them is called New Shit, and one of them is called Scores Please. They are about the spoken word scene. There is a artist called Spike Zephaniah Stevenson. Spike Zephaniah Stevenson also another poet. He sketches the poetry scene and has sketches of probably 80, 90 people. And these sorts of like, um, what you would call secondary parts of the culture, they're not like the actual spoken word poetry, but they they are content around it. And of course, the Lunar Poetry Podcast, what we're doing now, all this stuff increases the value of what we do to people who don't know about it. And if we can convince people that there is value in this, through having a half-hour conversation about two poems, or ho- or however it is, then I think that it means that we get to keep means that we get to keep a strong view and a clear view as a community about what spoken word is and what it can do and what it can be, and I think that Poetry the Pad is a really nice way of doing that because also I like to chat, and so and so it's a really good way to introduce people into some some of the details and some of the other stuff uh, that. You wouldn't hear usually
0: yeah I mean I'm just I'm not gonna do much else other than nod in agreement um, because I do I mean you know full well I agree with pretty much all of that and I think um, until people start treating their own work with more respect no one else is gonna cotton on to that and do the same um, so when's the next uh, pad event
3: yeah, so our next poetry at the Pad will be Thursday, the twenty fifth of August. Um, we are still putting together the, the lineup for that, but it's sure to be great. Um, we'll also definitely do something for our first birthday towards the uh, the end of September. Um, we have a couple of big things that I can't mention right now, but they're sure to be great as well. Um, if you want to find out more, um, you can go to the Pad TV. Uh, that's across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The Pad TV. That's where you can find out more.
0: Yeah, cheers. And um, I mean, I'm hoping
3: that there'll be
0: some sort of Lunar Poach podcast presence towards the end of September as well. We'll try and document, I'd like to get along and try and document some of that as well. So people, I'll be tweeting and uh, announcing stuff that you're doing as well. So people can follow here and there and just about everywhere. Embrace the power of Google. All Everybody about <laughs> <it>. social
3: media? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We'll take a final reading, I think. A final reading, yeah. Wicked. Um, this is uh, this is the piece that I usually end sets with, etc., and stuff like that. Um, but it's a really fun, angry, political-type rant thing. And in the context of UK politics, and even US politics, it's, uh, it's become more and more relevant to me across time, which I love about poems, that you can write them at a moment and then perform them at different moments and they take on new relevancy. Um, and I guess this actually addresses that a little bit, um, and it's called Push It. As I flick between my high hopes and cynicism, I will strive for balance and optimism. In my mind they're intertwined at the colours in the prism, but the light's too bright, it burns blurs my vision. I shut off the visual and enter the surrealism where my dreams are stacked high with pre-planned precision. My inward visualised mind is opulent neoclassicism and it's tailor-made by me because I am the chief technician. I shuffle foundations from their original positions, and wisdom and opinions, thoughts and new suspicions, by marrying tradition with proper criticism. Scientific mind I know based on empiricism, Tao, Buddha, Jesus Christ, man, I pick and mix with my religions. I'm a scripture-twisting little demon, far from heathen, I believe in the power of words, to build or break a whole world, and I mean that literally, language makes the earth twirl. Don't conceive it for a minute that it's out of your control. Think about it when you think of how you see your favourite girl reduced to commodity, or classified as whore. And if she's not inside the paradigm, she's bound to be ignored. And we know the leaders of this mission are worthy of derision, but daily life exists in a world where politicians speak their own language and present their own truths, by only cherry-picking the facts that support their views, which in and of itself is an unfair use, but their fact can be transparent too and at the time of writing this was true. And if you don't believe or think I've been deceived, it's a fact, imagine this on the news. As the Office of National Statistics shows, crime in the UK has reached an all-time low. And that sounds kinda counterintuitive, right? Already you're thinking no. But look below the surface, deconstruct that truth on show. The meaning of a fact is reconstructed in the flow of the language surrounding it. It is an object in the globe. These lyrics, words, and letters we pretend to set in stone are based on shared assumptions don't put one man on the throne. So swinging from the chandelier is my brand new ancient fear that absolutely, positively, no one knows what's happening here. Because if monkey see and monkey do, can monkey know objective truth? Why should the language of the universe be known to its symbolic youth? We are time and matter of beings. We only know what we can, we understand what we can, so we do what we can. And it makes sense to point out that only reported crime could be recorded. And that's why that fact seems sordid. If nature is immutable our information is neutral and the goal for human history may as well be to set up a sequel and I believe that that's a source of optimism and not nihilism. So keep on shouting smash the system till the ego starts to listen then focus on this little repetition. I don't believe in isms, I just believe in me. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can be free. I don't believe in isms, I just believe in me. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can be free.
0: Thanks very much. So, obviously, people know where to go to check out the pad, but where can people check out you personally, uh, any gigs you've got coming up and
3: new work? You can follow me on all the social media, at repeatbeatpoet, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter... Yeah, that's a. I, I tweet a lot of good stuff. Clearly, um, <laughs> that, that's a lie. But um, it is the best way to keep up with me. So uh, yeah, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Repeat, beat poet. Yeah, and like I said, um, I'll be retweeting stuff. So go over to us at
0: um, Silent Underscore Tongue, which is a Twitter feed. And I forgot to say at the start as well. This will be the first podcast of going out with as you know part of the new project which has got funding from the Arts Council of England. So thank you very much to them for giving me money.
3: Respect to, to the their. Arts Council for funding all of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, brilliant.
0: Um so there's going to be a lot of really great stuff coming up over the next 12 months. Um and I think this is a pretty good start. So thank you very much, Peter. Cheers.
3: Mad love to you man. <laughs> See you later everyone. Peace.
0: That was Peter. Definitely check out his work and the stuff he's doing with PAD and the various collectives he's involved with. So just a few weeks ago, on the 31st of August, I was passing through Oslo on my way from Sweden to the south of Norway. Um, and while I was there, I was lucky to have the day to myself um, and decided to well, ruin it with poetry. <laughs> um, I was lucky enough to meet with two poets. But coming up next is um, the second chat that I had there with a fantastic performance artist um, that also works with spoken word and text in her work her name's marta ram fortune um you can find her work at marta ram just wanted to say a big thank you to literature who set in oslo the literature house in oslo um who at very very short notice allowed me to use um an office space or sort of a little library space up at the top of the, uh, the headquarters there in oslo to allow me to do the uh do the interviewing, which was a big help because I don't know Oslo that well, even though I lived in Norway for a while, but it's hard sometimes to find locations, um, suitable locations, away from god-awful espresso machines, creating racket when they're steaming milk. So, big thank you to Little said, and a big thank you to Marta for meeting me at such uh, short notice.
4: I will read a text called Kut. It's cut. Jeg låner tekst som en slags tyv. Sand mine ord, disse, risser dem in i stein, där linjer har satt sig som sedimenter av organisk masse. Ordene bryter som kutt i en kropp av tid. Ankerbarn, alenemor, belastet, denne plassen. Munkmuseet, Tøyentorg, steinen, er et forum. Som Bastilleplassen, som biblioteket, ett formativt sted. Det finns andra måter att komme varandra i møte på. Vän, i mig och mun. Disse tavlarna er notatböcker där år efter år har fallt på plats, rosa år, svart år. Linjerna tilfredsstiller längselen efter en progressiv fortælling, serom vart sedimentfall är er ändlig, hårt, poröst, girne brudd hvis plata skulle falla i bakken. Och den fallt, den bröt. Jag drömmer om natten at disse stenplattor knuser, en efter en och att allt jag har en är er urangripliga berättelser vandrehistorier rikter. Gunvor du skrev «Venn, ge mig ord av din ömhet Venn, ge mig själ och mun ditt ansikte klager i mig vilt som en jämlös hund du dricker mig ut och ricka. du bor i mig ut och bo jag vill ha svar Men jag hører bara mitt eget blod. Jag vill vise frem tavlene, stikker den største I en koffert. Koffert er ubeleilig, uhåndterlig och bærer ikke sin egen tyngde. Under Oslo Open, et arrangement der kunstner i Oslo viser frem arbeidsstedene sine, går kofferten i bakken med et brak. Det blå nylandstoffet ser sjasket ut på linoleumsgulvet. Buketten fra Narvesen feller blader. Det er et rent brud, brudd norrsteintavla går i stycker men kuratorn som har er kommit fram för att se upplever en performance sier trött that thing isn't working very well is it allt brister jag vet att det kommer att fungera trenger hjälp finner det steder där kofferten kan tjores fast eller ska kofferten stå ute här i atrium på munkmuseet hästekur Går med den översatta texten i väska. Värsten packat in i bobleplast. Jag har lärt nå. Marmor brutes sakte ned av fett, fukt, dueskitt och regnets syre. Körer fast kofferten till ett bord på Norby konditori. Sitter där i tre timmar, passiv-aggressivt kontaktsökande. Är er kanske bara en parasitisk speilflate, en upstads pappegöje i svart och rosa som stedes andra åpslags See si vad du mener om Tøyen Torg her!» Det skingrer fra plankeveggen foran mig. Det er to tegn jeg ville oversette Hoffmo. Ett tegn for sjel och ett for mun, Så kan resten fortelles muntlig, improviseres. For ikke alle snakker norsk. Familien min snakker ikke norsk. «My family doesn't speak Norwegian yet. You are my family and I love you!» «Soul, I thought!» Must be a moment of existential clarity, for example like pain, see I oppresser den mer lille platen i henne, på hun som sitter på benken ved siden av meg. Like a whip that hits skin, breaking it. The line going across the stone. Munnen? Well, it's a mouth. Reading horizontally or diagonally, you cannot escape the banality of its explicitness. But the banal is eloquent in its delivery of both cruelty and kindness. The politicians know. This way, it could be both a vagina or his lips. My family doesn't speak Norwegian yet. You are my family, and I love you.
0: Tack, and thank you, Martha. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, It's really nice to meet you. So um, we're in Oslo, and before I plan my, didn't really plan the trip. I've been in Sweden in the forest for a week, and now I'm back in civilization. And I just contacted some friends that I have that are connected to art and literature over here. And my really good friend Yilda who I trust in all matters of recommendations <laughs> with art, uh, who works at Standard Gallery here in Oslo, um, sent me a picture, and it was really because I looked at it on my iPad. So it was really tiny thumbnail, and the, Yilda said, "I don't know who this uh, person is," which she did a really great project. She's reading poetry on a bus, and that was enough. To get my spark my interest yeah, yeah, and for yeah, yeah. me to contact you, um, so I'm not gonna. I don't like to pretend I have more knowledge than I do. I'm not going to pretend that I know your work, but I was just really interested in the crossover between the performance art and your writing. So it's probably best if you just explain a bit about what your work involves, what your practice is, and uh, what you've absolutely. Been
4: going on. Yeah. I think um, I came into performance art um, by necessity. Um, and I would say that um, both literature, poetry and um, kind of other art forms have been formative for me and the way I read performance art is um, as a genre that transpires from um, sculpture, painting, uh, literature As this um, extended limb you know like an extra tool in your Swiss knife Um, if you think about it in relation to uh, the avant-garde you know and uh, the incentive of or the necessity of starting to use manifestos for example uh, and to kind of um, use text and action as a way to imply that uh, the autonomous art object or the elevated art object had been um, had been kind of um, stolen and needed to be retrieved through quite extreme means, but also as an act of loyalty to say um, towards a society in crisis, to say we need different tools that are accurate for the time that we live in. Um, And I think performance art is is not always a very potent tool, but uh, it's not, for me, in and of itself, radical anymore. But I think that there are ways of merging um, um, modus operandi. um, uh, And for me, it has a lot to do with the ability to improvise uh, and the ability to incorporate um, fragments of uh, uh, audience interaction that kind of overwrite my own sentiment.
0: Um, definitely one of the things that attracts me to performance art um, is that ability, that the openness it gives to artists. It seems to be the only art form that still exists, sort of traditional art form, in art schools that exists and allows you to bridge different media doesn't it? you know you can spend uh, a couple of years writing text and then bring it into a performance so you can go off and paint it seems now the way art education works is you very much pigeonholed into your one thing aren't you you're only one thing after that And it does seem that performance art still allows that ability to react to a situation in a way that other art forms don't I to think to
4: to I don't know I think um I think that what has happened is a backlash in terms of that uh, um, idea of performance art being very um, like much more free and open than, than the other uh, genres. Um, in a way, doing performance has made me into much more of a purist, in which I don't uh, believe in performance as a separate genre, I believe it to be uh, again, the consequence of the um, um, in, inabilities of a painting or a sculpture alone uh, and the uh, desire and need for for that object to extend into a different realm. Um, and and so again, I think it's about applying method to the appropriate situation. Uh, and And of course, um, performing allows you to do that but also I think it can be uh, an alibi in a way to claim that your your work is kind of innately radical. No, each gesture is isolated and each gesture has to be rethought and you cannot uh, kind of trust your method. So at, at a particular point, you know, maybe making a painting would be more Uh, accurate than than
0: then but how uh, how important has literature been to your practice
4: just I would say uh, maybe the most important uh, space Um, I think in my childhood I I grew up next to the Munch Museum so I experienced this liberty in um, there was no su- no such thing really as pedagogy in the museum at the time. If there was, I must have escaped their uh, long arms because there was a room in the basement in which you could draw and then you were also surrounded by the texts about the artist, you know, his, his life story and then around that time so many seminal works were also written so it seemed that his practice was also very connected to... Um, to literature in Norway you know there were many important artists and writers in the period such as uh, Hans Jäger and um, Christian Krog. and then you had all you know the uh, feminist writers um, who so, so there so so you could say that um, through Munk in a way understood that writing was also a practice in which uh, you kind of resumed responsibility in a way. Um, And that writing was connected with, you didn't have to be, you didn't have to stick to a medium. So, but uh, yes, I would escape to this drawing room in the basement and I would also um, read adult literature from, you know, from a very early age. And I was never forbidden to Read anything. If it was Bjørnabo, who was this explicit, he was taken to a to court for being for his inappropriate writing, which is ridiculous in our time in a way. But you know, I was never forbidden to read anything. As um, my mother thought that being exposed to uh, pre-generated images such as, you know, a soap opera was more dangerous for the imagination than to, gen- than to generate images based on a text. Mm. Um, and so,
0: yeah. I mean, my, my so I lived in Kristiansand for four or five years and I worked predominantly in galleries. So I was traveling around Scandinavia and inst- installing um, artworks into exhibitions and I worked a lot with performance artists. There was a, there's always been a very strong link, which is why I was able to meet or get in touch with poets when I came over, because even my art, artist friends, which in, U, in the UK there would be a division between people that I know that are involved with literature mm. and people that are involved with art, there's a small grey area, but in, it seems in Norway there's a much larger crossover, and it seems to be that there's a, a deeper history between artists expressing themselves through literature as well. Um, so it, seem, it seems quite nat- the link between your performance and literature, it, it seems quite natural. But how did the project on the public buses come about and what did that involve?
4: Well, um, I was invited to participate as part of a program um, called uh, Munkmuseum on the Move, Munkmuseum Bevegelse, and um, where the artists are asked to deal with the fact that the museum is moving from its location in Thøyen Which is in inner city east in oslo to a kind of the barcode area and a new development um, uh, in bjørvika and in which there's a class there's a cluster of new signal buildings Mm. dedicated to culture and this has been very controversial and also for me uh, so i think they willingly, knowingly invited artists that would uh, um, approach the task with criticality. Uh, And and I think um, you could compare the process with field work really, because I, in in an anthropological term, um, where I spent a long time uh, traversing what used to be my, my childhood, uh, square teintorg and uh, bringing these very inconvenient sculptures with me these portable stone platelets uh, that I had engraved with um, symbols based on an interpretation of a Norwegian poet Gunmar Hoffmo um, whose um, the love of her life, Ruth Meyer was deported with Donau um, and, and um, she was assassinated in, in Auschwitz She was a Jewish girl. Uh, And so my attempt with the text are both to encounter what cannot be captured in an object, whereas the object is an interface of what cannot be captured in a text. And then the actions that I really do with the help or, or with or with the resistance of the audience Uh, creates this kind of malleable whole in which we can maybe um, create different kind of interfaces uh, or synthesis between um, the anecdotal and the quotidian uh, of individual experience and this overarching uh, narrative of um, political decisions uh, uh, that, that affects our lives and that kind of seep into our language in particular.
2: Um,
4: and as you may know, um, kind of a backlash of uh, um, the terrorist attacks that happened in, in, in Oslo by Anders Behring Breivik in 2011. Uh, um, after the fact, there has been this uh, neoliberal kind of political... Um, backlash in a way, uh, in which we now have the most conservative government that we have seen. Uh, it's a coalition government, and for example, uh, the government is operating with a particular rhetoric to prevent uh, asylum seekers and um, economic motivated migrants to come to Norway, which has been seen as, you know, a haven for, uh, for people that must escape. Um, and it it's rather um, disturbing to see how this banal language of uh, a Facebook page, discouraging uh discouraging you from from coming to Norway based on, on restrictions um, the banality of these everyday interactions and the simplified language being used that's something that interests me very much and that's something that I uh, sample in a way and incorporate in my own texts mm. so it's all about combining elements to create an interface in which these elements you know meat uh, because as I said in the text that I just read that the banal is eloquent in both expressing cruelty and, um, and uh, hope.
0: Mm. I'm interested to know about how when you when you carry out any public projects how this work is received by audiences you know because it seems like um, There's always well, you can never tell, can't you? What the reaction is going to be when you when you spring an artwork on people? You know, if you turn up on buses or in um, in public spaces. So, um, first, I suppose I was wondering what the reaction is like, and two, um, when you go into something, do you have a firm idea of what the performance will be, or do you react? Is there much improvisation as to?
4: Um, To answer your first question, um, the Sometimes, sometimes um, I enter a space uh, on the level with an object or something that is already there uh, and enter it on a more abstract level in which I just insert myself into what's already existing and I just try to um, listen to it or observe uh, the space. And the people, rather than kind of projecting my own idea and trying to make them fit my oeuvre mm. uh, or project or expectations. Uh, because if you come with expectations, you are also, um, you know, easily manipulating the context to um, fit your end goal. And you could say that I work in a reverse manner. And it means that I'm also putting myself to the disposal of the space, not in this kind of messianic way at all, uh, uh, but, but more like, you know, um, if there is anger, anger, I will receive this anger and I will uh, uh, mediate it. And if there is um, there's surprise or uh, these kind of given elements, They're also a a part of this noise, the noise of the city or the noise of uh, the museum or the noise of the art object, the noise of the text. So it's this synthesis I would like to point at. uh, For example, when we're on the bus, um, of course I introduce these um, meticulously crafted marble stones engraved that are handled, I offer to the audience to handle, Uh, and to throw around really Uh, at the same time as we are looking out the window of the bus the driver is saying Karl and then we drive past the um, uh, apartment blocks where our prime minister used to live you know, between 1949 and 1972 Uh, you know, he, he lived in Tøyen uh, and we're driving on the bus and we are surrounded by... It's not. We are not just surrounded by context, but we are where we are, and specifically there. So I'm looking for uh, moments where you can point at this specificity um, whilst re- um, retaining a contact with um, art history and this kind of this idea of uh, the institution as this... Uh, impenetrable space, Um, so through the method of improvisation, I'm kind of trying to uh, remove the hierarchy. Although, to point that hierarchy, I also have to be clear about my own position, because in the performances, I'm a dominant voice, and my actions are, uh, of course, even though improvised, the sequences have been thought out. It's just about how to pace them. Um, I think it's
0: actually a really good point to make. You, uh, one thing that does slightly annoy me about public art projects, especially performance ones, is that when the artist claims that automatically by s- stepping into a public space, you're putting yourself on the same level, but you're not. Not at you? all. You've got no, the dominant voice, no, it's you are in control, aren't you? And it, it, exactly. And you have to be aware, of, like, you... you you have it's paramount that you're aware of that before yeah. you start or otherwise you'll just uh, steamroller over everyone that comes into contact with the project aren't you
4: that's exactly it and and to me a way of uh, mediate at, it's about mediation let's say because on this bus trip for example uh, passengers enter and as they enter i inform them that uh, um or Representatives from the museum inform them very specifically that on this bus trip you are entering and you will experience such and such, and is in the context of such and such. Uh, and then I approach them explicitly and say, uh, "Can I read to you?" Or it's all, there's always a proposition, and the rejection is paramount because and then and then the the. Um, uh, Distance observer is paramount and the natural participator is paramount because everyone finds their role when I establish my role and I'm clear about it. And then of course the vulnerability is real because then we are then we are together in the same space. So I mean it's it's very important to be to be rejected. Uh, I think it's it's key really that there is. Um, failure is imminent.
0: Failure is imminent.
4: Yeah.
0: We'll take another reading there. I like that yeah. just just up yeah. there. I like that. Okay. really good yeah. very good phrase. We'll yeah. have one more reading course, okay. it's really fast. Okay.
4: Musée Dagen derpå, det syke barn, självporträtt med cigarett, Mellom klockan och sängen ett sted. Drack vin från knuste glas, akkurat som pappa for full til å finne veien hjem, akkurat som pappa Bodde ved et hvitt koloni kolonitid Krysset ditt blikk Kom meg helskinnet over plassen Ikke dårlig til autostrada å være Med et pennestrøk forsvant stedet der jeg egentlig bodde Tok deg på gresset i Tøyenparken i oktober En mus pilte over kjøkkengulvet i april Sluttet å stå emot, sluttet å vaske, sluttet å rydde grorde blomster i la lakkärn i körleskape som Jay DeFeo, la levestiften i politistations informationskranke, signerade överfallsanmälelse med eyeliner, miste truser och puteträck på fortauet. Det straffer sig att gå på den närmaste vaskerie. Alla kan följa stina skittentöj som ramler ut, men hullig i posen är er inte det samma som att vara statslös. Packar ut, packar ned, alltid på flyttefot. Flytter herfra til et andet sted, bærer bristende vesker over plassen, igen og igen. Indtil videre bor jeg i museet mellem klokken og sengen et sted. Blås op byen min. Det øser regn. Fan, fan, fan. Han har omarrangert innehåll i plastnettet och de to bæreposene helt siden jeg kom till torget. Forbannelsen lyder med ujevne mellomrom. Etter hvert synes jeg det er noe livsbejane og lystig over er som om man danser rundt tingene der de ligger sprätt, glittrende och slittige gjenstander om hverandre. Delvis lagt på bakken och på de matte utemøblemanget i tre utenfor tippekiosken. De ulike nivåene og objekter... Er de ulike nivåene objektene er plassert på skapar en snål, men dynamisk koreografi. Barn liker å se på ham, de er sirkelig begeistert rundt mannen. Det er ikke vondt ment. En dame sätter sig på bordet ved siden av ham, i ly for regnet. Han finner straks anledning til å snakke med henne, slik han roper etter tre män. Skal dere i moskeen? Det er bra gutter! Fan, fan, fan! Kvinnan som söker liv från regnet snackar demonstrativt i telefonen och markerar avstand till en rusa fyr. Männen på väg från moskeens smiler överbärne. På bänken utanför biblioteket sitter det någon jenter med modern och spiser frukt. Den yngste kommenterar maleskrin mitt höglütt. "Mor, nere ser misstänksamt på mig." "Jag förstår henne. Ser du nekligt litet ut där jag sitter med aviser av maling, lej av och mala blomster." Det vicke precis ut utilstrecklig. Böro skrive mine bokstäver över en artikel om Donald Trumps sprö brev. För Donald skrev med fet pen på artiklar om han selv, sände de overskrevne sidorna till journalister och opponenter. Fortellinger skapar adferd i avis på avis, mönster på mönster. Fan, fan, fan. Akvarellfärgerna är er nå urene och ba- blandar bara brunt. Som går det när jag bryter mina egna regler. Sten med munnen på ligger i blomsterbedet, skitten av våt jord. Sakte bryter ne- regnen ned marmor i en usynlig process, Da är er i alla fall noe på gang. Jag forstår att barna får beskjed om å la være i fred. Litt den rusa mannen vekker jeg skepsis, men min tilstedeværelse accepteres på armlengdes avstand. Tänker på Chantal Akeman. I den korte filmen «Så man vi» blåse och byen min, glir kamera over Bryssel by, og tar os så opp heisen i en modernist modernistbublokk. Den unge jenta i filmen behandler allt som er känt hjemme hos selv, som om hun aldrig har sett noe av det før. Spaghetti på gulve, klar i kjøleskapet, vin mens hun balanserer på arbeidsflatenes ytterpunkter. Hun synger, men lyden er ikke med leppenes bevegelser. Så hopper hun ut av vinduet, jentekropp på betong. Det handlar ikke om galskap, men om längseln etter sublimering. Taket på trekonstruksjonen jag sitter i er lekk, och og de små furutrærne ved siden av mig fremstår lattelige akkurat nå, som jeg, ustelt och malplassert i regnet, blank punktus. Jag har nästan gitt upp for dagen. Kan faktisk dra herfra når jeg vil, akkurat som museet. Så stanser du, en mann med aksang. Kanskje er du polsk. Du slår av en prat selv om du blir våt. Du forteller att du har sett mig mange ganger med stenene kofferten, och avisen og maleskrinene. Du fortäller att du jobbar med stein och betong. Du är er håndverker. Du lurer på vad jag gör. Jag fortäller om projektet och att jag är er künstner. Vi jobber nästan med det samma, sier du. Alltid i runt rundt på redskapen våra i tillfälle där er noe vi får bruk för.
0: Takk, takk, takk. Failure is imminent. We'll stop there. Thank you very much, Marta.
4: My pleasure.